Well, thank you, church. God bless you. Will you be seated? I greet you in the lovely name of our Savior. It is a privilege and a joy beyond my uh, ability to express to be back here worshiping with you, dear people, at Eden Westside. Over the last 20, ever how many years now it has been, and itinerant work, you have become my favorite stopping place. And you don't know how much you mean to me. I love you in the Lord. I greet you in the precious name of Jesus. I thank God for your splendid pastor. He's a dear friend, a dear comrade. I love him to death. And thank God for the privilege of standing in his place today to preach the word of God. So you pray for me. Look forward to being with you tonight. Let me urge you to go home. Do everything you can to honor your father and enjoy him. And y'all have a, a big family time together. But make sure that you stop it early enough in the afternoon to be back here for the evening worship service, all right? Looking forward to that. I'm going to be preaching on the subject, God's much more, the much more of God. You ought to be interested in that, so come find out about it, all right? I want to ask you now to take your Bibles and turn with us, please, to 2 Kings chapter 3. Can you find that Old Testament passage? 2 Kings chapter 3. And I want to ask our fathers to pay close attention to me just a moment. I'm not preaching what you would probably call a Father's Day sermon, but I want to dedicate this message to all of the fathers who are here today. We hold you in high esteem, gentlemen. We love you. We thank God for you. I am the richer by far because of my father and his contribution to my life. He's been on the other side for a long time now, but my life has been impacted by him in ways that I continue sometimes to rediscover if not discover for the first time. Thank you, men. Thank you for being fathers. Thank you for loving us and being patient with us. I want to dedicate this message to you fathers. Can I do that? I hope that you will accept it as such. My way of saying to you, in behalf of all of us, thank you and God bless you. So to that end, I'd like to invite all of the fathers, just the fathers. Would you rise to your feet while we read the scripture together? Will you do that, gentlemen? All fathers, would you... Just rise, and with everyone's Bible open to 2 Kings chapter 3, notice the role of the men in this chapter. And you determine, guys, which one of these you'd like to emulate. Chapter 3, verse 1 of 2 Kings. The Word of God says, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father, that was Ahab and Jezebel, his mother, for he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not from them. And Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep master and rendered unto the king of Israel an hundred thousand lambs and a hundred thousand rams with the wool. And it came to pass, when Ahab was dead, that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel, and King Jehoram went out of Samaria at the same time, numbered all Israel, and he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, the southern tribe, saying, The king of Moab hath rebelled against me. Wilt thou go with me against Moab to battle? And he said, I will go up. I am as thou art, my people as thy people, and my horses as thy horses. And he said, Which way shall we go? And he answered, The way through the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went, and the king of Judah, and the king of Edom, and they fetched a compass of seven days' journey, and there was no water. Underscore that. And there was no water. For the host and for the cattle that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, and the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet the Lord of the Lord, that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here's Elisha, the son of Shaphath, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? 
Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth, before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee, nor see thee. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass, when the minstrel played, that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. For thus saith the Lord, Ye shall not see wind, neither shall ye see rain. Yet the valley that shall, shall be filled with water, that you may drink both you and your cattle and your beast. And this is but a little thing, a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will deliver the Moabites also into your hand, the much more of God. And he shall smite every fenced city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop all wells of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. And it came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered that behold, there came water by the way of Edom and the country was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the king, the kings were come up to fight against them, they gathered all that they were able to put to armor and upward and stood in the border. And they rose up early in the morning and the sun shone upon the water. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood, the power of red. And they said, this is blood. The kings are surely slain, and they have smitten one another. Now therefore, Moab, to the spoil. And when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites so that they fled before them. But they went forward, smiting the Moabites, even in their country. And here ends the reading of God's word. And may he bless it to all of our hearts. And God bless you, fathers. We love you. We thank God for you. I honor you and hold you, sir, in high esteem. Pray with me, will you? Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for giving to us our fathers. We worship you. We honor you. We adore you. You were so wise and kind in giving us our fathers. Thank you for putting the solitary into families and giving fathers to families. We love you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you'll bless these men standing today. And you'll encourage them, help them to know that they are blessed of God and that we honor them. Now, Father, will you take the word of God and apply it to all of our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you be seated, please. One of the great movements of the Lord ever known in our country and uh, abiding countries occurred in 1940-42. In the Hebrides Islands, in the North Atlantic, northwest shore of Scotland, a series of islands known as the Hebrides. Do you know where we are? In 1940-42, under the leadership of a godly man named Duncan Campbell, God swept across the Hebrides Island in one of the most amazing experiences of authentic, genuine revival ever recorded in the history of the world. Duncan Campbell, the point man of that revival, told the story in my hearing, at least on a videotape, cassette tape it was, listened to him share the story sometime after 42. One time he was preaching in the second great wave of that revival in a church house. He just got started preaching and just beginning to get into his message when right in front of him, two or three rows back, a man abruptly jumped up and rushed out of the church without trying to conceal uh, the sound or anything else. He was just rushed out of the church. It was very obvious to everyone present. Uh, Duncan managed to keep his uh, uh, cool and kept on preaching. And the next night, the man was not back, nor the next night, nor the next, nor the next, not until the last night of the meeting. The man returned, sitting in the same place that he had abruptly left nights before. When the service was over, Campbell had noticed that he was back and was curious the man came up to Duncan Campbell to speak to him and began by apologizing for his abrupt departure from the service the other night and asked for the preacher's forgiveness. And then he said, 
well, sir, do you mind telling me what was going on? Said, you have some kind of problem? And the man said, well, sure, pastor. He said, here's what happened. While you were preaching, I heard the dog bark. He said, I sat there while you were preaching and God brought back to my memory what happened to me as a young lad of a boy, a young teenager. He said, I stole a neighbor's dog, a pedigree dog, took him off to another city and sold him, pocketed the money, and never said a word about it, never owned up to my crime. He said, that was years ago. I was a young teenager. He said, while you were preaching, I heard that dog barking. And I knew what I had to do. He said, I left, I went straight and began my journey of trying to find out if the old man was still living that I stole the dog from. He said, I discovered that he had since died. I found out his two sons, the heirs, and I was able finally to establish contact with them yesterday. He said, I confessed to them what I had done, asked them to forgive me. He said, I gave them a check each for the price that I obtained from the sale of that dog plus all of the years of interest from that day till today and gave the check and the money to the both of the heirs and asked them if they would forgive me. While I'm preaching today, I believe some of you will hear the dog bark. It will be about unrelated and different issues entirely, most likely, but you'll hear the dog bark. You'll hear God speaking to your heart, and you'll want to quieten him down. You'll want to muzzle that noise. You don't want to listen. Will you this morning determine to listen to the dog bark? Those kind of things happen in authentic revival. An atmosphere is present where God can move in mighty ways. And I'm excited about that. You know that's my heartbeat. And I do not apologize for readdressing the subject. For listen to me, my friend. I believe you agree with me. There is no hope for America apart from an invasion of God in real revival. No hope. Mark it down. You're smart enough to know that. All you've got to do is read the newspaper occasionally. There's no hope. There's no power existing in our country that can turn this nation of ours around from the quagmire she has sunk into apart from God and a miraculous invasion of revival. That is the greatest need of America. That is the greatest need of America's churches. And if it is, we ought to give it the priority that it deserves. And we must never let go of the dream, the desire, the passion, and the prayer that God will yet come and touch down Someone has described revival like the tide that comes and goes in the ocean. I'm not talking about the crimson tide now, all right. The tide that comes and goes. It recedes and, and it comes in and goes out. And I am told that when it goes out, it has to go out to its ultimate fixed maximum point before it turns to come back in. The tide's been going out for a long time in America, a long time. As a teenager in high school, public school, Bessemer High School, I was elected chaplain of my junior class. Every day of school for a solid year, I began the school day at 8 o'clock sharp on the microphone intercom system throughout the school. And I prayed. As long as I wanted to pray, anything I wanted to pray about, and prayed every prayer in the name of Jesus unashamedly, and not a word was said. That was 1958. You rule God out of the classroom, and you wonder why it has become a squadron where you have to have protection, and we're trying to defend the lives of children. When, when will we put it all together? When will we put it all together? There's no hope for America apart from God and revival. If you believe that, and I believe most of you do, then give yourself and don't let go of the burden for genuine revival. And there's never been a better appearance of that kind of movement of God than the passage that we just read about. 
You need to remind yourself that the battles recorded frequently throughout the Old Testament are all there designed to help you and I understand that the Christian life is a warfare. It is not a picnic. It is not a parade. It is a warfare. You and I are engaged in spiritual warfare. And there's no explanation for what is happening to our nation apart from a spiritual warfare that is mounting its forces day by day and we are suffering and given in by the day. We must return to the compass of God's Word. Newspaper article I read a few days ago, front page stated that the American people have lost their moral compass. Indeed, they have lost their moral compass. When you walk away from the truth of the Word of God as your only sole authority, there will be nothing else to guide you. You've lost your moral compass. I still believe it to be the only authority, the only authority for the child of God, the written Word of God. Let's look at it and see where real revival occurred. The first 15 verses that we have read talks to you about what I want to call the futility that disturbed these men. The futility that disturbed these men. Jehoram, king of the northern kingdom, which kingdom was wicked to its core and had been abandoned by God, just waiting till their ultimate demise. King Jehoram from that northern kingdom needs to go to war against Moab because Moab has refused to continue to pay tribute like he did to his father. So he goes to Jehoshaphat, the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. Jehoshaphat, and asks Jehoshaphat, will you go up to war with me? Will you bring your army? Help me out in this battle. Foolishly, Jehoshaphat immediately said, oh yes, sir, I'll do it. My people are your people, my horses are your horses. An unholy alliance against the way of God and the will of God without consideration just said, yes, sir, I'll go. So the two of them and their armies amalgamated together with the armies of Edom, the three kings go off to battle. Jehoshaphat says, what route are we going to follow to get there? And they suggested that they go through the wilderness of Edom, the drought land, the dry, barren desert land of Edom. Seven days into that journey to do battle against the Moabites, they come out distraught to say, we don't have any more water. They're in the middle of the desert. They're going to do battle. They, they've got everything else that they need. They've got all the ammunition they'll need for their battle. They've got their battle plans all worked out. They've got their everything they need, their program, their provisions. They've got everything but the one thing they will need the most in a desert, water. Seven days and they're without water. What a picture of the contemporary church relating the contemporary church of our day to the Laodicean church of Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. You'll remember that that church at Laodicea bragged that they had need of nothing. What a sad remark. What a sad remark. My church people saying, we don't need anything. We got everything we need. Why, why, that's us, isn't it? You know, we got our nice buildings. We got our great programs. We can do everything you want. We can educate your children. We can teach you everything you need to be taught. We can print Bibles and we can print literature and we can put it all in your hands. And we've got great campuses. We've got great materials. We've got great preachers. We've got great leaders. We don't need a thing. We've been there for the longest. We have been relying upon what man can do and we have obtained what man can do. And that is zilch, niche, nothing. It's futile, absolutely futile. We need to remember that and keep that in our mind, the futility that disturbed them. We have need of nothing. Let me remind you, my friend, that we have desperate need of much. The mere futility of human effort. Man has tried to do it his way so long. When are we going to stop dead in our tracks and fall on our face before God in the midst of the dire circumstances that we live in and cry out, God, what do you want us to do? We've tried everything else. We've listened to every other voice that's come our way. God, what do you want us to do? And if we'll turn to this book that I have in front of me, we can find out what God wants us to do. Somebody say amen, all right? Won't you get happy with me and let's go to church this morning, all right? 
Would you like to do that? Let's do it. Armies were well equipped. They had everything they needed, but the one thing they needed the most, and that's water. The Laodicean was a lukewarm church that sickened the, the, the system of the Lord. He's going to spew them out of his mouth, all because they thought they needed nothing. The tide must go out to the last inch before it turns. Oh, that you and I will be alive when it turns and when revival begins to sweep back through our land. That's our only hope. I live for that. I believe that. I desire that with all of my heart. And as dark as the days are, and yet to get darker, I will continue to believe that as long as God is God, God is the God of revival. And he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. So let's believe that and keep trucking on. Verse 11, without water, Jehoshaphat said, is there not a man of God here that we can inquire of? One of the servant soldiers said, well, there's this man here who used to help wash the feet of, and hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat knew him, knew of him at least, said, that's Elisha. He knows God. He's got a word from God. Get him here. They went and found him, and they got together. And you remember, I love that, that straightforwardness of Elisha when he looked at Jehoram, the godless king of the northern king, and said, if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat standing here beside you, I wouldn't even look in your face. I wouldn't have a conversation with you. Thank God for men like that. Thank God for courage like that. Thank God for men who will stand and be counted. Thank God for fathers who will rise to the occasion and be men enough to be men of God. That's my challenge to you, gentlemen. Be men enough to be men of God. Elisha looked him in the face and said, I have nothing to do with you. He talked to Jehoshaphat and he told him what to do. He told him what to do. Notice the fact that here is a young guy unnamed to us. He's a servant in the army. He's unnamed. We'll never know who he was. And yet he becomes a link in getting Elisha, the man of God, on the scene. He knew Elisha was there. Thank God for people like that. In chapter 5 of this same book, you're introduced to Naaman, the leper, captain of the Syrian army. You remember when he wanted to be healed of his leprosy? You remember how a little girl who was a, a foreigner, she was from Judah, she was a foreign girl away in Syria, a slave, a servant girl to Naaman, and she said, oh, would that my Lord knew about Elisha from my country. He could help him. She was the link for Naaman. Here's the unknown soldier boy. A link to get Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, king of Edom, in the presence of Elisha, the man of God, so they could hear from God. You and I have the privilege of being that link many occasions in lives of people around us. If we would but make ourselves available to God, you can be the link whereby that message is given to somebody else. And your name may never appear in print anywhere, but God will write it down in his book of remembrance, Malachi chapter 3. Read about it, okay? Wow, I'm going to have fun today whether you do or not. Is that okay? <laughs> Listen to me, my friend. I'm enjoying you because I know you love revival. I know many of you long for it as much as I do. And you have experienced a measure of revival along the way. In this church over recent years, I know that. But you also know, and your pastor knows, and I've talked about it. We've not yet experienced the fullness that God wants us to experience. God's much more. God's much more. Here's Elisha. Here's Elisha. A uh, story that comes out of that great revival days of Duncan Campbell. He was walking down the roadway to his next preaching engagement. That was his primary method of travel in those islands, uh, from island to island by boat. But once he got on the island, by foot. He's walking down this road toward the church assignment that he's got down the way. And he walks past a young girl who's on her knees in the dust on the side of the road crying. He was skilled and trained in the old school that's a good school to protect himself in his honor. And he just walked on past her. He didn't want to uh, be found out like that with a young woman. So he just walked on. But God prompted him, stop, go back, speak to that young lady. He stopped, obeyed the prompting, went back and knelt down beside the young girl who's weeping in the, on the side of the road and introduced himself. First words, I'm Duncan Campbell. She said, 
Oh, sir, we've been looking for you. A 15-year-old girlfriend of hers, and she had prayer that morning together as they had every day for revival. And the 15-year-old girls were promised by God that Duncan Campbell was coming to their parish, their church field, if you will, where revival had not yet settled down. Other places all around them were experiencing revival, but not there. And they had that promise, 15-year-old girls. Young people, listen to me. One of the reasons I like to stay around young people is because in the history of revival, God has chosen to use young people in a special way as trigger points for real revival. So I like to hang out around young people. I want to be close to them when it happens, all right? Somebody say amen. You might all do the same, you old folks, okay? They may not want us around, but I'm going to hang out with them anyhow. He got down on his knees with that young lady and began to talk to her. Quickly discovered she was a born-again child of God, burdened for revival. And they prayed for over an hour, almost an hour, 30 minutes to an hour, together on their knees on the dirt road. They got up to make their way onto the church. In the meantime, at that church down the road, 14 young men, young adult men, single guys, had gathered and they were standing in the front lawn of the church, 14 of them, making plans for how much booze, liquor, they ought to bring to the church house that night for the dance and party that they were going to have in the church house. In the midst of their plans and conversation, one young man spoke up rather trembly and said, well, friends, I'd like to recommend, I think you might need to order more than that because somehow I have a feeling it may be the last liquor served around here for a long time. They laughed at him. They joked at him. They jested with him. They embarrassed him. They said, ha, ah, what are you saying? You, you got revival sense too? You think revival's going to come to our parish? The man said, I, I don't know for sure what's going to happen, but I know something is happening in my heart. And at that moment, he fell on his knees before God and before his 14 friends was born again of the Spirit of God. About that time, Duncan Campbell and that young 15-year-old girl walked over the horizon, walked up to these young men, and before the day was over, all 14 of those young men had bowed and received Christ as Savior and Lord. All 14 of them. The God of the 1940s is the God of this generation unchanged and unchangeable. Who has moved? God? No. Have you and I, God's people, His church moved? Yes. Tragically, we have moved. We must move back. We must return. The link in that story was a little 15-year-old girl. You can be that person. Determine before you leave here today that you will be that person. Most of you know the story of D.L. Moody, my favorite English or American preacher of all time. D.L. Moody heard as a young man this remark made by an anointed preacher. The world has yet to see what God can do with one man wholly committed to him. D.L. Moody on that occasion rose to say, I will be that man. If you know anything of the legacy of D.L. Moody, you know he was that man. Duncan Campbell was telling that story during the days of revival in the Hebrides. And having told the stories I just did, he said, is that man here today? One young man in the middle of the congregation stood to his feet cried out, I want to be that man. I want to be that man. Then he fell in the aisle of his church and surrendered to be that man. Campbell reported later how he was by that point in time a pastor of a local church that was experiencing the hand of God in great revival upon his congregation. Is that man here today? I'd like to ask you fathers, I'd like to ask you men, you men especially, is that man here today? 
Would you rise to say, yes, I will become that man. I want to be that man. I will give myself. I will do that. I will be that man. Wow. What a day it would be if out of this congregation on Father's Day, one man would rise to become a D.L. Moody. A D.L. Moody. The answer is prayer. The answer is prayer. Not only in the first 15 verses do we see the futility that disturbed them, but in verse 16 through 20, we see the faith that delivered them. The faith that delivered them. Look with me at verse 17. God's word through Elisha to these distraught kings was, make this valley full of ditches. Dig the ditches. Dig the ditches. The ground was hard. The ground was barren. The ground was parched dry. It's desert land. If you've ever visited that part of the world, you know what real desert land is. A lot of it everywhere. Desert land. And in that desert land, God says, make the valley full of ditches. For you will not see the wind, verse 17. Neither will you see the rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water that you may drink, both you and your cattle and your beasts. That was the instruction from the man of God to the people of God. Dig the ditches. You see my title sermon? Sermon title, whatever it is. Dig the ditches. God's word to these distraught people. Dig the ditches. Now what would you have done if you were a member of that army? Starving to death for water? Parched? Blistered? Cracked lips? Starving for water? And the preacher tells you, dig the ditches. Out there in the wasteland. I don't know about you, but I probably would have questioned the sanity of my leader. Not these men. What did they do? They started digging the ditches. What was the ground of their confidence? What was the ground of their assurance? The simple fact, God had said it. Let's get after it. Let's do it. God said it. We'll do it. That ought to be our prompt response to anything God says to us. Amen? Amen? Do what God tells you to do. Listen to God. Obey God. Instead of running around trying to figure out what the church growth gurus have got to recommend to us now, go back to the Word of God and find out what God recommends that we do. In a time such as this, the faith that delivered them, implicit confidence in the Word of God, Listen, my friend, leave revival up to God. God is sovereign in revival like he's sovereign in everything else. But this sovereign God has sovereignly decreed that you and I must participate and cooperate with him in the measure of revival like everything else. He said, you dig the ditches. God could dig the ditches, but he told them to dig the ditches. You dig the ditches. Hmm. Paul, uh, Moses said, behold, I've set before you life and death. Choose life that you may live. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve. So we need to understand that the word of God requires cooperation from you and from me. They that expect God's blessings must prepare for them. If you expect God to bless, you need to prepare for it. And you need to dig that ditch. And the size of your ditch will probably indicate the measure of your faith. You got that? The size of your ditch will indicate the measure of your faith. Think about it. Think about it. Alan Redpath said, If every life, in every life there are ditches to be dug, if God would pour out the blessing. Someone said, The deeper the ditch, the fuller the flow. So you're in re you're responsible for digging the ditch. How deep are you going to dig it? Are you going to dig it a couple inches and then walk away and say, I've done my job? Are you going to get that old spade and go at it and go at it and get it as deep and deep and deep as you can? Because the deeper the ditch, the fuller the flow. How about that? you got to participate. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, Jesus outside that grave where he was lying dead, a corpse, you remember he said, remove the stone. He required the people there on that occasion to remove the stone. Jesus could have moved the stone just like he could heal and would heal Lazarus. But he required the people there to remove the stone. And so he requires you and me in divine cooperation with him 
to dig the ditches. What kind of ditches do you need to dig in your life? What kind of ditches do you need to dig in your church life? Let me suggest a few, okay? Jot them down if you're interested. Make this valley full of ditches. I need to recommend to you that we dig the ditch of earnest concern. Earnest concern. Are you concerned about what's going on around you? Are you concerned with the status of the church? You're such a blessed people, you do not know perhaps what's going on around you in sister churches everywhere, not just up north in the dark, dark northeast. No, no. In the Bible Belt, Alabama, Alabama. In the state of ours. I shared this with your pastor the other day. He said, why don't you tell my people that? So I'm going to obey Jackie. In a nearby city, southeast Alabama, not long ago on a Sunday night, they dismissed their regular Sunday night service and had a beauty pageant on the stage of the Baptist church on a Sunday night where normally they would be having church. A beauty pageant. Parading the wares of little girls and young women across the stage where the word of God is supposed to be being proclaimed. That's Alabama. In that same city, the local funeral home chapel has conducted eight weddings, I believe it was eight weddings in a month Eight weddings in a month in the funeral home chapel. Do you get that? Are you with me? Would you like to get married in the funeral home chapel? What is wrong with our society? Something has gone wrong. Now, I understand that a wedding and a funeral have a lot in common. Excuse me. Say, I love you, Brother Dodd. But I don't want to get married in the funeral home. Do you? What's wrong with our society? Have we all gone leave of our sense? We walk away from the moral compass, which is the word of God, and everything goes downhill. And we're plunging so rapidly, nobody knows how to put the brakes on. And until God steps in, it's utterly futile. What does it mean to dig the ditches? Dig the ditches of earnest concern. Are you concerned about the members of your church who do not frequent the house of God, who week in and week out deliberately absent themselves from worship? Are you concerned about them? Are you concerned? Dig the ditch of prayer, persevering prayer, persevering prayer. I'm not talking about now I lay me down to sleep praying. I'm talking about getting a hold of God and taking hold of the altars of the throne of God and refusing like, like Jacob to let go until he blesses persevering, importunate, fervent, righteous prayers. Do you pray? Do you pray? I mentioned this morning, I must mention again, and I pay tribute to you people involved. When we came in the house a long time ago now, it seems like a couple of men met us. We went back to the pastor's study. First thing we did was pray. These three men prayed for me and my wife. We stood there in that study and we prayed. Walked out the door, there stood three more men ready to come in to pray for us. We went back in the office, those three men prayed for us. All three of them prayed for us. And then when we finished that, they took us to the prayer room. The two people in the prayer room prayed for us. You people believe in prayer, and we honor you for that. But I want to tell you, if you're not personally involved in persevering prayer, you're failing God, you're sinning against God, you need to understand where the Bible says, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. The sin of prayerlessness. Are you concerned about that? Dig the ditch of persevering prayer. Dig thirdly the ditch of unconquerable faith. Unconquerable faith. These men believed that if they would do what God told them to do, that God would do what he said he would do, and the water would come. They dug the ditches. That's faith. Remarkable faith. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. You'll never have a good report apart from being men and women of faith. Dig the ditch of unswerving loyalty, unswerving loyalty, loyalty to God, loyalty to the church, loyalty to the things of God, loyalty to the scripture, loyalty to the people of God, loyalty to the programs of God, loyal. Loyal to your wife, loyal to your husband, loyal to your children, loyal to your parents. Loyalty, I am told, 
by those who study society that our generation is a generation that has no sense of loyalty. Evidenced by the fact that we are no longer uh, committed to buying our favorite brand name items, whatever it might be. Like me, for years I, I loved Heinz ketchup, okay? I measured all ketchup by Heinz ketchup. Heinz being the best, of course. Until just recently, my wife introduced me to a new store that has come into Birmingham that has their own brand uh, of ketchup. And I tried it, and lo and behold, it took me, I had to swallow to do it to admit it's better than Heinz. <laughs> so I'm no longer loyal to Heinz. We buy this other brand now. That's the flippant mentality of this generation. Whatever's the biggest thing, run off to it. Wherever the people are going and making the most racket, go find what out the racket's about and join up with them. You need to be loyal to your people, loyal to your church, loyal to your God, loyal to the ministry of this church that you are a part of. You've given yourself to these people. Now be loyal. Somebody say amen. amen. We must be loyal. Dig the ditch of faithful service. Faithful service. God called you to serve. You were saved on the way to service. You are to be serving God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Enter into his courts with thanksgiving. Service. Dig the ditch of testimony, personal testimony, where you can begin any conversation, in, insert in any conversation, conclude any conversation, briefly with your own personal testimony that whet the appetite of somebody out there listening Restore, dig the ditch, dig the ditch of consistent behavior. Consistent behavior. Again, this week, two occasions, heard the sad story of people who have given up on the church because they have seen the inconsistent behavior of alleged church members. That folks out there watching you, watching your behavior, your behavior as a child of God, and they're measuring the Savior and the validity of what he has to say by your behavior. Is it consistently godly behavior? Is it consistently Christian behavior? Dig the ditch of consistent behavior. Dig the ditch of utter surrender. Utter surrender. You folks just sang about it. That's great. That's the issue. Surrender. Surrender. To this end, Christ both died, revived, and arose that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Surrender. Make your motto, the great old hymn, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. We need to get back to the compass, the moral compass being the word of God. Charles Spurgeon said, you don't need to try to defend the Bible. Just let the Bible loose and it'll take care of itself. Revival can occur in the church. If you and I will live the word of God, if we will preach the word of God, if we will sing the word of God, every song sung in this building, every sermon preached in this building, every Bible's lesson taught in this building ought to be straight out of, plus nothing, minus nothing, the word of Almighty God. And you have a blessed privilege of being a part of that. You don't know how rich and blessed you are. But he, everywhere I go, I, I go in to visit Sunday school classes from time to time as a visitor. And they'll have a Sunday school quarter. You don't even open the Bible. And they'll, they'll have a, a, a Bible passage. And they'll ask some member of the class to read that passage. And tell us what you think about it. Read another passage. Tell us what you think about it. Really doesn't matter what you think about it. You hear what I'm saying? It does not matter what you have or think about it. Your thoughts may be good, may be valid. But if they're not, you're in trouble. We come to the word of God to have somebody explain to us, thus saith the Lord. Now let's get up and do it. Sing the word, preach the word, live the word. You don't have to defend it. Let it loose. It'll do its damage. It'll take care of itself. It'll take care of itself. So, what's all this about? Digging the ditches. It means, first of all, the breaking of the dry crust. A crust has fallen across the Church of America of our day, Alabama and beyond. A crust. Many of you remember the images on the TV screen over the last couple of weeks of the volcanic explosion in Guatemala and Hawaii. The ash 
that fell across the people who were nearby and those who survived that ordeal. We saw pictures of them with the ashen crust all over their body, an ugly dark gray. You remember that? That's the spiritual condition of the church of our land. Volcanoes are erupting around us and the ash has fallen down and there's a heavy crust across our lives that needs to be removed, dug out, dug out. We need nothing else but the word of God. Do everything according to the pattern. That was the word of God to Moses. God gave Moses explicit details on how to build the tabernacle. Once Moses had the details, God said, do everything according to the pattern. What do we do? We go off to some kind of authority on the subject and ask them for their opinion. Instead of looking at the pattern in the word of God. The word of God is absolutely sufficient, totally sufficient. For years we battled the battle of the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, having failed to do that then, we're having to battle the battle of the sufficiency of Scripture, and we're losing that battle rapidly. I want you to know the Bible plus nothing minus nothing. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, that's it. Amen? And we believe the Bible. And if this crazy society of us accuses us of breaking civil rights laws because we are living by the direct teaching of Scripture, then let it be. Let it be. We will not conform to society. We will not conform to the rules of man. When man decides it's okay to do it, doesn't mean it's okay to do it. Right? Well, amen. Amen. It also means not only the breaking up of dry crust. It means the removing of the stones. You dig ditches in that kind of land, there's stones everywhere. Stones everywhere. And those stones and the ditches being dug have got to be removed. And there's some stones in your life that you need to remove. And God's telling you this morning, get rid of it. Remove it. Remove it. In 2 Corinthians 6, 17, the Bible says, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. Touch not the unclean thing. That's God's command, imperative mode. Not a suggestion, a command to every believer. Touch not the unclean thing. Is there something that you're touching on a regular basis that you have no business touching? Somebody else's spouse? Literature? that is godless, materials that are pornographic, TV programs, programs on your internet, and all that other communication device that you know about? Is there any unclean thing that you're looking at, watching, touching, any day? Stones need to be dealt with, relieved, thrown away. Cut away, given away, walk away from it. That's what it means to dig the ditches. Dig the ditches. The deeper the ditch, the fuller the flow. That makes sense, doesn't it? You want the water to really flow and dig a deep ditch. Wow. Why you had to dig it deep, okay? Dig it deep. Well, that sets the stage for my final word. Verse 21 through 27 talks about the flight. F-L-I-G-H-T, they fled. In verse 24, the flight that delighted them, verse 21 through 27. This supply was a divine supply. Suddenly, once they got the ditches dug, they were filled with water. I want you to notice that was a mysterious supply. A mysterious supply. Nobody could figure it out. They hadn't seen any rain. They hadn't heard any uh, wind. No wind, no rain. Suddenly, those ditches were filled with water. God is the God of the miraculous. The miraculous is ordinary to God. You understand that? You understand where I'm coming from? I mean, that's just the ordinary for God because God is God. I believe in miracles because I believe in God. And the God who created the water, the God who created the desert, is the God who can fill the desert with the water he's created anytime he wants to. He's quite capable, thank you, and so we don't need to worry about it. Amen? It was a mysterious supply. Just like Jesus talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 8. 
said, The wind bloweth where it listeth, where it wills. And the, thou hearest the sound thereof, but you can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. When the wind blows, you can't tell where it's coming from, can you? And you can't tell where it's going. And you can't see it, can you? There are a lot of things I can't see that I believe in. You say, are you foolish? I don't believe in anything I can't see. Oh, think about it. I believe in electricity. Do you believe in electricity? I've never seen it. Don't want to see it. Scared to death of it. Wouldn't know what to do if I did see it. I don't want to see it. Never have seen it. But that does not keep me from utilizing what I can do with electricity. Right? So, my friend, it's mysterious because God is God. Let's let him be God. It not only was a mysterious supply, it was a miraculous supply. Way beyond their wildest imaginations. No explanation for the water on natural grounds alone. Why? Because God promised the supply. God planned the supply. God provided the supply. There's a sermon I'd like to preach, but I'm going to rush on. It was a miraculous, mysterious, and thirdly, measureless supply. Measureless. Not a man or animal was left out. There was more than enough water to satiate the thirst of every man and all three of those armies and all of their cattle and all of their animals. It was a measureless supply. The all of God. The much more of God. It's only as your all is on the altar that God in turn gives you his all. Do you get that? It's only as your all is on the altar that in turn God will give you his all. That's the secret. That's the secret. The complete victory, verse 21 through 27, records that great victory. The Moabites were soundly, roundly defeated. They got up the next morning, the Moabites did. And they looked out over the horizon, and it looked like red blood. They didn't know what had happened. They assumed that the Jewish people had arguments with one another, the northern and southern kingdom, and fought one another all night long and killed all each other. And it was the blood in the water causing them to see red, the power of red. I like that. So they assumed they, they were dead. They said, up, oh, Moab, let's go gather the spoil. So the Moabites go, head over to the battlefield there where the ditches were to gather the spoil to thinking that's what they're going, only to be surprised by the fact that the Jewish people were there very much alive waiting on them. They rose up and defeated them soundly and the balance of the chapter shows you how soundly they were routed in defeat. Victory comes on the other side of obedience. Victory comes on the other side of consecration. Victory comes on the other side of refusing to touch the unclean thing. That same psalmist said, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. Mm. What in your house do you need to remove or turn around or get control of? Because of the time, if nothing else, it is draining from your life that could be spent working for God. How much time do you spend with all of your devices on a daily basis? I dare you, track it down. Get a stopwatch. Write down the time you spend with all of your medium devices. You may be surprised. Do whatever you have to do. Dig the ditches. Dig the ditches. Dig the ditches. I'm going to ask our singers to come and prepare, please, for our invitation time and as they come I want you to give me your undivided attention as I share this closing word with you I want to invite you this morning to obey God I believe that God clearly has led me to share this word with you and I honor you people for understanding the word of God now I challenge you to be obedient to the word of God has the dog barked for you today while I've been preaching have you heard the dog barking that little thing that slipped in the corner of your mind and you don't know where it came from but you don't really glad, not glad it came at all, that may be the barking of the dog reminding you of the step you need to take 
to get all together right with God, to instantly obey and do whatever he tells you to do. I want to invite you in a few moments to come to this altar and settle that issue, whatever it may be in your life. You did not tell anybody else. If you want to, that's wonderful. But you just come to this altar and pray and get it settled, get it right with God. There will be men up here to help you. Some of you need to come to be saved. You may have already been saved. You want to make your profession of faith. Follow the Lord in believer's baptism. We invite you to do that this morning. These men will help you with that. Would you come? Whatever decision you need to make. But I challenge you, will you dig the ditches? Will you dig the ditches? Nobody can do it for you. Nobody will do it for you. It's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. Will you do it? During those days of revival, I heard Campbell, Duncan Campbell, tell this story. It's hard to believe by a lot of people. It makes a few Christian people a little uncomfortable, but I don't think it will you in the main at least. But I must tell you, I tell you just as it happened, okay? During days of revival, Hebrides Islands, 4042. One night at 12.30, church started. 12.30 p.m., church started in a farmhouse after they had had a worship service in the nearby church house. They closed the service somewhere around midnight and the people flocked over to the church member's house and they had church the rest of the morning. They started at 12.30. You know they weren't Baptists. They, the Baptists don't do anything at that time of day except get in trouble. Well, when you find Baptists not worrying about the clock anymore, you know we're going to have revival. I look forward to that day. Listen to me. Duncan Campbell started preaching about 1230, and he was getting in the groove, and God was giving him an anointing to preach the word of God, great freedom and liberty. People just clinging from every window, upstairs, on the stairwell, every chair, floor filled with people. And he was preaching with liberty. But all of a sudden, five harsh, ugly, violent, demonic-filled men stormed in the back kitchen door, stood behind the counter, and glared at the preacher in front of them who was preaching. Obviously, Campbell was disconcerted, real difficult to maintain his train of thought. He tried the best he could, but he just couldn't get back in the groove, so he stopped. He was wise enough to know what to do. He said this. He said, the devil is in this place. The devil has come to thwart the ways of God in this place. I'm going to ask young Mr. So-and-so gave his name. A young man, a very young single man. I'm going to ask him to deal with it. Campbell knew that young man and knew the anointing of God that was upon him. So I'm going to ask him to deal with it. When he said that, that young man fell out of his chair on the floor, face forward, and prayed out loud for 30 minutes. Then he rose to his feet. And here's what he said. I quote Duncan Campbell. Devil! You're here to frustrate the purpose of this meeting. I now, devil, take upon myself on the basis of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus to order you out of this meeting. Devil, I put the blood of the lamb between you and this meeting. Be gone, devil, be gone. At that moment, the Spirit of God fell in great power upon that house. And before the morning sun rose, every lost person in the building were saved, including those five demon-possessed men, born again of the Spirit of God. That's the power of red. The sacrifice... The ditches were dug and the water came at the hour of evening sacrifice. Shed blood on the altar. There's power in the blood, wonder-working power in the red blood of the Lamb. Don't change your message. Don't change it. We have but one message. Would you be free?
from your burden of sin. There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Will you rise to your feet and close your eyes and let's pray together. Heads bowed. Eyes closed. Let's pray. While I'm praying, you might want to make your way on toward this altar. While these guys are singing, while I'm praying, you just come. Bow down here. Do business with God. There'll be those to help you here should you want them. Father, we love you. We praise you and honor you. Thank you for your word. How rich, how pure, how, how powerful. Thank you, God, for the Eden Westside Church. Lord, will you bless her? Will you let her yet become the stackpole by which all revivals could be measured? Let her become the leader in a spiritual hour of awakening. And Lord, across our land, so move, so move. May your will be done. We thank you. We bless you. We honor you. We magnify your name. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Will you sing for us now? And will you come, my friend? Come all across the building.